You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien. My guest this week is Vicky Beeching, who has latterly become something of a crusader and a campaigner for equality. She came out as gay at the age of 35 and is keen to ensure that that other people don't have to go through what she went through before that age. Because before that age, she was um, not just a member of the evangelical Christian community, but one of its brightest musical stars. She has an incredible story to tell, but more importantly, she is a woman on a mission. But before we meet Vicky, I'm delighted to tell you that unfiltered alumnus Russell Kane has joined the Joe roster and here he is to tell you a bit about his new show. Hi, Russell Kane here and I'm hosting a brand new podcast for Joe, Boys Don't Cry, where I get a bunch of men together and force them to talk about the things we never talk about. Body hair, body shape, why do girls only fancy bastards? All the things we worry about but never discuss. Oh, and I'll also have a girl helping me each week just to make sure we're not talking rubbish. So go to wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, wherever, and download Boys Don't Cry Now. Cheers, Russell. And time now to meet Vicky Beeching. I guess I'm most keen to find out precisely why The Guardian recently called her arguably the most influential Christian of her generation. Her book, Undivided, Coming Out, Becoming Whole and Living Free from Shame, is, well, it's actually quite beautiful. What does the word evangelical mean in the context of congregations? Yeah, so it's a form of Christianity that exists all around the world and it's sort of quite modern in its expression. So you'd walk into a church, you might have heard them referred to as happy clappy. Hmm. So you're likely to get, um, instead of an organ, you're likely to find drums, guitars, keyboards, that kind of thing, upbeat music that sounds maybe a bit like stuff you'd hear on the radio, uh, which is, I think, is really, really positive because it's almost reimagining church for the 21st century. But at the same time, evangelical churches still have quite um, traditional theology on some things. So you might walk into a service, see quite a modern looking approach to music and spirituality, but actually their teachings on LGBTQ equality specifically Mm. is pretty much across the board that uh, same-sex relationships are sinful and that marriage can only be between a man and a woman. Which is you leaping ahead to, to the meat of <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, that's, what, that's when, I, when I would say it's, when I say they're conservative or traditional. That's what you mean. I'm, I'm meaning particularly on the issue of same-sex relationships, but also the evangelical church has, over the last few decades, shifted on women as well. So there are as some... a woman's place. Yeah, exactly. So there are some churches that would now call themselves conservative evangelical who actually don't think that women should be able to preach or become priests or bishops. And there are members of the Church of England who still feel that way and they are kind of allowed to have that view because the Church of England is seen as a broad church. So those are the sort of traditional views that I'm talking about. And as as a young girl, you are not aware that this is a relatively small constituency? Well, if you are living in the middle of it, it can feel like an entire universe. Of course. So... There are and, and are you living in the middle? I mean, do you you don't go to an evangelical school, or you, but church is the centre of your life? Yeah. So when I was growing up, church really was the centre of my life, and that form of Christianity has its own radio stations, books, CDs, conferences, mm. youth meetings, summer camps. So it's it's quite easy to see how it could become a life for someone. You know, you can feel like you're in the middle of a universe. And that's a bit like how it felt to me, like I was in an kind of alternate universe, really. So you didn't know it was alternate? It no, was I didn't. the universe no, that no. existed. And then I think because my primary school and secondary school were existing under Section 28, that for me 
meant that I didn't ever hear about same-sex relationships anywhere. So teachers were essentially banned, weren't they, from talking about same-sex relationships under Section 28 in the UK? You could, you were not allowed to... Um, it was brought in under Thatcher, wasn't it? It, it was, didn't, It didn't yeah. stay in place it, for very long. It only stayed in place for about 13 years. But this was yeah. the promotion mm-hmm. of homosexuality was yeah. the word that they used, and people yeah. like Norman Tebbit were worried that it might be contagious. Exactly, exactly. And if you taught children, because not, not everyone's going to be as across this as you are. Yeah. So, so I'm, not, I'm not teaching you at this <laughs> yes, point. Yes. I'm just, just yeah. providing well, a bit of context. It couldn't be presented in schools as a pretended family... Um, Yes. Sort of set up. So you just couldn't teach that it was a viable option. And as a result of that, um, at least in my high school and many others I've heard of, it wasn't taught at all. So not in biology, not in any kind of personal social education. And there wasn't any kind of, you know, if you're if you're dealing with your sexuality, come and talk to a teacher. It just mm. wasn't there wasn't anything. So at home, at school and at church for me, really all I heard was either silence or that it was Simple. Or, or, or grand negativity. Yes, grand negativity. Pretty vile negativity as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Before that, we sort of start examining that battle, both within you and without you, the rest of your schooling, because not to be impolite, but it's not very cool doing Christian music. <laughs> it's interesting you say that. I think it, it wasn't necessarily about it being cool, but the first time I sang one of my songs in church, it felt to me so exhilarating to get to kind of combine my faith and my music yeah. and see people come up to me afterwards and say I feel like I met God through that song I mean that's that's amazing and of I thought course. at the time that's what I'd love to give my life to so even as a teenager it might not sound like the coolest thing in the world I don't know to me it seemed really meaningful so you were lucky in a sense that that you weren't bullied that you weren't surrounded by people taking the mickey out of your Christianity no or... no, no. I, actually, you grew up in Canterbury I did there were a lot of Christians in my year at school um, See, when, again, sorry mm. to labour the point. When you say Christian, do you mean evangelical? I mean evangelical Christian. So there are a lot of people from your yeah. community, yep. your congregation. Lots of people from, well, congregations across kind of Canterbury and Kent. Right. The Why school. were they drawn to that particular school? Um, Did it have a reputation? I don't know. I mean, evangelical Christianity is popular. It's the fastest growing part of the church in, in the UK. Yes. So if you go to London, churches like Holy Trinity, Brompton, you yeah. know, big churches like um, Hillsong, you know, there's thousands so, of people. So oddly. Cause so it, it, is, it has actually quite a large population. Right. Because I, I, I was working on the premise that you must have stuck out like a sore thumb at school but and, not but really not no, at all no. anything but i would say i probably had well i tended to gravitate towards people just like me which i think is the problem what does so, that mean and um, we clubbed together you know we had something called the christian union that we ran at school and i just spent my time as much as i could with other people that thought the same things as i did and obviously today that leaves me with quite a lot of regrets because although they were great people i wish i'd just diversified why do you think you didn't? Yeah. Just, was it just the path of least resistance? I think it was. I think it just felt safe to me. What was home like? Was it a strict um, upbringing? You've got a very loving relationship with your parents. Yeah, my and, parents were amazing. And they came through later in, yes, in life. Yes, they are when amazing people. Out, um, I don't know, it wasn't particularly strict, but we did, you know, church was really important to all of us. It's one of those weird things because it, it is your normal. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. For, for, for everybody yeah. else, it's extraordinary. Right. So it's it's did I you know boarding school on a much lower level. People are fascinated by boarding school, mm. but when you went to one, that's all you ever knew. So you don't really yeah. understand why everybody else is fascinated yeah. by it. It's, and then we all watch Harry Potter and, uh, and want to understand what boarding school is. Kind like. of, kind of true to life. So <laughs> yeah. so you, you 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 had musical talent, mm-hmm. and that yeah. you presumably saw as a gift from God. I think people at church would have said that. I yeah. just enjoyed playing the piano and writing songs. And when did you first start doing that? I think I was about. Eight or nine, actually. And, and how did you know you were good? I don't know, I guess... Well, the first time I ever wrote a song, ever, I was eight, I think, and it was um, at sec- uh, primary school, and our teacher asked us if we could make something up 
to sing in assembly. Yeah. <laughs> I started making up this song, and I ended up with nine verses. Wow. <laughs> it was this long, long assemblies. thing. And they just said, there's too many verses. You know? <laughs> they said, this is very good, but it's just way too long. And so they cut it to, like, three verses, and then the whole, the whole of our class sang it. And then... Um, that again was really sweet. It was just encouraging to me. I'm guessing it's probably the same as anybody who starts writing music for pop or rock or whatever. Yes. In your early days, you sort of, it's just quite a surprise. You're like, oh, wow, there's some lyrics and there's a melody and here's a song and other people seem to enjoy it. And it's, I don't know, it's, if it brings a smile to someone else, that made me always think this would be a cool thing to do with the rest of my life. And, and that, that, yeah, and that is sort of very neatly and diplomatically undermining my suggestion that it was a fundamentally uncool genre that you were... Uh... That well, you... I did play other songs as well, like to my classmates. You right. Know, so you could a... sing and you could play. Yeah. What, what, what instruments? Uh, so I started on the piano, but I decided that that was fundamentally slightly uncool. And so I decided it was time to move over to the guitar. And um, I talk about in my book that mm. my mum actually took me to a music shop to buy me a really cheap wooden classical guitar. You know, those kind of strummy kind of cheapo things from like Argos or something. And I saw an electric guitar in the shop window, fell in love with it. And somehow, because my mum is really kind, <laughs> we ended up leaving the shop with this electric guitar. And that for me was just, that was just it. I was I was never seen again. I was always in my room playing the guitar, you know, cranking it up to number 11 on the amp, <laughs> driving our neighbours crazy. Spinal tap. Exactly. Were you happy? I was when I was playing. Yeah. It felt like a, a really cathartic expression. What did like, you need to purge? I guess, in part, some of these feelings I was dealing with. Already? Um, well, I knew I was gay at the age of 13. Right. So I think I first... Did you know the word? I, well, I didn't really have any role models. I didn't know anybody personally who was LGBT. So I guess probably the word that I would have thought of mostly was homosexual. Yes. Which many of us gay people now feel is not the best term in the world. <laughs> so Why not? Why not? I think it's just the kind of word that tends to be used by critics. Yes. So if you listen to... It's quite to, clunky as well. Yeah, well, if you listen to any... But preaching in churches, they'll say, yeah. you know, in America, the abomination of homosexuality. <laughs> it's got about nine <laughs> syllables in it, and you're just like, oh. homos. <laughs> so I think I've heard, I've heard too many American Bible Belt preachers using the word to ever like it myself, so I just use the word gay. So you were, you were writing music and, and experiencing a sense of catharsis while not ever writing or singing about the things that were causing you. Mostly I just sang... Um, About Jesus? Mostly I sang kind of Christian music. Yes. Yeah, just things based on the Bible, which, you know, you may think is inherently uncool. No, I don't. I, so, <laughs> I, I want to yeah. be clear about this. I, I, I think people like you are really important. Mm -hmm. uh, I think to be proud and publicly Christian without being mm -hmm. sententious and, uh, yeah. and, and judgmental is, yeah. is, for me, and it's not as a radio phoning host, it's not the most popular position I could adopt in the world, but mm -hmm. I think we need more of that. Mm -hmm. It was very specifically the happy clapping okay. music that I was mocking, it wasn't. <laughs> okay, 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 that's totally fair. That's totally fair. It wasn't, so I remember uh, there was one, one evening when I wrote a song about a girl hmm. that I really liked in my class, and I just remember, I mean, my songwriting always happened quite easily. The words would just kind of fall onto the page and... I was just kind of singing out whatever was going on in my heart. And I remember after I wrote that song about a girl that I liked, I just felt so much shame, oh. so much shame. It was just like a wave of shame hit me. And I thought, I've used this gift that allegedly God has given me and I've used it for something really sinful. And I remember just crying and saying sorry to God and praying that he would forgive me and saying that I would never write about girls again. And I never did. You'd be... F 13, 14 mm, by this point. Yeah, really sort of tender-hearted, earnest. Well, it's the age at <laughs> which of, you do. I mean, yeah. some of us write poems, some of us write songs, some of us yeah. sort of stare at the moon. 
<laughs> you paint a picture of what sounds like, and at least in that compartment of your life, epic loneliness. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, I think that that is the word that has characterised not only my teenage years, but everything up to the age of 35. I think isolation, you know, that sense of having this thing that you have to keep secret, that you can't tell anyone, not your parents, not your school friends, not your teachers, not your priests, because you've been told that it's so wrong and how, dark. How, how was that message articulated? Because I'm not unfamiliar with this world, far from it, but it usually focuses upon male gaze, doesn't it? For, in the church? In my, yes, in the church, in my experience, it, it, it's usually there's an obsession with the physical acts that, that men get up to. Can I tell you... Mm. Something quite yeah, unpleasant. Do, yeah, I interviewed. Yeah. I did a pilot for Channel Four about twenty years ago, and it didn't it didn't get commissioned largely because of what what happened next. And I turned to an evangelical Christian from Northern Ireland, a peculiar brand of evangelical Christianity because it's tied in with sectarianism and creationism. Sure. And and I just asked him what was wrong with being gay, and straight away he said there is nothing wrong. No, I said. So, but what exactly is your problem with being gay? And he just straight away said, it is not natural to shove your fist up another man's anus. Wow. And, and that, for me, is mm. the fire and brimstone homophobic right. brand of, of preaching. I, I'm interested in how a young girl mm-hmm. who has gay feelings is... What messages are you receiving? Is it is it broad and generic condemnation of homosexuality, or, or is it as specific and as graphic as some of the anti-gay male preaching mm. can be? I think, I mean, a lot of the stuff I've had in later life from critics has been quite graphic. And, I'm thinking more about but, that. But when growing you were... up, it was um, it was just a blanket understanding yes. of homosexuality in general. So that's two people of the same um, sex who go to bed exactly. with each other. And that yeah. is sinful. Or anything. Any, you know, having the feelings was wrong, feeling attracted was wrong, Not, no, There was none, of, wrong, that, none of that hate the sinner, love the sinner, hate the sin stuff. Well, that, yeah, that sort of um, emerged later, probably in my late teens. And that was a phrase that the church kind of came up with to... I guess, try and make out that their theology wasn't homophobic. And the phrase is, love the sinner, hate the sin. Yes. So if you're a gay person, that means that the church can claim that they and God love you, the sinner, but yeah. they hate your sin. And so it's, it's, it's very, I don't know, it's very divisive and fragmenting. It's almost like there's these two parts of you and you're supposed to believe one of them's okay, but yes. the other one isn't. It's reverse engineering modernity yeah. as well. They're trying to keep the ancient or the old teaching without... Mm-hmm. Accommodating in some sense the fact that clearly there are a lot of gay people around. Yeah, yeah, and it's very difficult. Previously, there weren't. <laughs> right, and it's hard to be told that you are loved if your potential way of of loving others is said to be hated, uh, and that's that's the really difficult part. Yes. Um, evangelical churches today would say that actually now they don't think there's anything wrong with having gay feelings. Right. It doesn't inherently make you it's a, bad. It's, it's actually acting, acting on them. On them. That's even, but saying that to a straight person wouldn't work. It's like, you know, you're a heterosexual person, your feelings for someone are, are okay, but if you do anything about them, if you ever wanted to have a partner or a life or a marriage, yes. that would be wrong. And it's, it's just a mind spinner, you know. It really is. I mean, it is yeah. beyond the, 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 the understanding of people mm-hmm. who haven't actually endured it. The, yeah. the, what's the scriptural justification then, Vicky? Because I, I, mm. I, it's a bit of a pet subject of mine as mm-hmm. a phone-in host. I'd like nothing yeah, more yeah, I than I bet getting, you get lots of Bible getting, verses thrown at you. Yes, I do, <laughs> and I actually generally throw them straight back at mm-hmm. them. I know my way yeah. around Leviticus like I do around yeah. the... Well, you already know Leviticus. The so. back streets of Kinemis. But yeah. you use the word abomination. Yeah. If you know your way around Leviticus, you, you can point out that the same yes. word is used to and describe this, shellfish. This is, exactly. This is where it all stems from. Because obviously everything comes back to a root and within christianity the root is the bible the sacred text um and in my book i try and blow apart some of those myths Mm. because i know the only way to really change opinions in the church is to encourage people to go back to those texts and realize actually 
we've got them wrong. Why does it constitute such a large part of the evangelical message? I don't know. I think you it's must just have become, a better idea than me. It's become a sort of bastion of protection. Do I you think. need an enemy to unite a congregation? Maybe. I do wonder that. I really do wonder that because I think a lot of evangelicals that didn't believe women should be priests and teachers yes. and things, they had to admit that that battle had been lost because the Church of England finally, only actually, you probably remember, about mm. three or four years ago, finally allowed women to become bishops, mm. which again shows how slow progress happens yes, within the church, because that's quite shocking, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I think, I think a lot of the really traditional evangelicals were so disappointed that they'd lost that battle, that women were allowed to become bishops when they'd been campaigning against it, that I think now the issue of same-sex relationships has become the kind of final bastion to protect, to say, actually, we lost that one, but we won't lose this one. The last battle. Mm-hmm. The last battle, to quote C.S. Lewis. One of yeah. the finest theologians of the 20th <laughs> Indeed, century, which yes. not, 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 yep. all, not all Aslan fans are aware of. It's true. Um, He's right, an amazing we, man. We'll come back to you. He's a beautiful writer as well. We, we, we'll come back to that because I want to get back to you realising that your musical gift was a little bit out of the ordinary. And pres- I, I don't know, let me speculate that perhaps because you were aware of this conflict inside of you that, that presumably you wanted to postpone or ignore for a long time. Mm. Like, you tell yeah. a story about telling a priest in the yeah. hope that he would help you pray pray it away is the yeah. phrase that you use uh, yeah. the, I mean that, that's heartbreaking stuff yeah, I know the, it was. The, the idea yeah. that uh, you're so convinced that there's something fundamentally wrong with you that you you want to fix it yeah so you probably doubled down on the music because every exactly. minute that you spent being musical was a minute you didn't spend being frightened and guilty and exactly. shamed yeah and the music was getting a really positive reception in the church in the UK I think I signed my first major publishing deal when i was about 17 is there a lot of money um no no (laughs) (laughs) because as you said it's inherently fairly uncool yeah well yeah but still not Um, every 17 year old you can make a living doing it um kind of a meager living i mean some people do very very well out of it um but you became quite a big star i mean you soon crossed the atlantic for your music yeah it was encouraging to see the music catch on because churches are always looking for new music to sing because obviously they have endless services. And then, you know, <laughs> How long was, are the services? Is, um, it really depends. In the, the UK, maybe an hour. But okay. some of the American. more sort of American Pentecostal, you know, looking at a good three-hour marathon, Fantastic. you need to take snacks, you need yeah. to take water. Um, <laughs> <Snacks>. <laughs> you need You need biscuits and yeah, tea and stuff. It. So, so you, yeah. when did you, so you, you signed a deal? And it happened quite naturally because, because yeah. music is such an intrinsic part yeah, of this just world. Sort of, I guess it would be the equivalent of songs going viral. And at that time, I was so afraid of that aspect of myself you know my sexuality and and fear of being rejected by the church it was an amazing feeling to think there was this other part of me that people in the church really appreciated and said was good and holy and glorifying to god and all those kind of words you know and i thought okay so i i need to just forget the fact that i'm gay i need to just assume that i'll always be single and focus on this one thing that i can do that everybody tells me is good and maybe somewhere along the way god will make me straight because really? that seemed you to be still what everybody... hold on to well, I was, like I was told, you know, there's this thing called conversion therapy. Oh. And I'd heard so much about it. And there's a, there's a part in the book where I actually attend a really big youth yes. camp. It's about 4,000 young people there for a whole week in the UK. And they had people get up on stage and, and say... To the... Yeah, kind of giving their testimony, as yeah. they would call it. And one of them said God had set them free. These were people my age, set them free from being an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. One of them had been set free from being a porn addict. And then a girl got up and said she'd been set free from being gay. Mm. And then they said, if anyone here in this big audience of 4,000 people relates to any of that, you want to come forward, we'll pray for you, and God can do the same for you. So I was so nervous, you know, I'm looking out at 4,000 people. But I just took the courage, you know, because I was desperate and went up to the front and ended up having what, 
turned into an exorcism. You describe it in the book as a form of exorcism. So they're yeah. trying to drive the demons out of exactly. You. And I, I you don't were a sixteen-year-old. I was girl. sixteen. I don't use the word exorcism lightly. But what it began with two adults just praying for me quietly in a quite a respectful way. But then I think they thought I was a difficult case because I was a gay Christian, and that to them was a bit of a battle to take on and yes, so they just kept because most people would have rejected the christianity mm-hmm, exactly whereas you chose to try to reject, to reject the gayness. The, yeah and so these people praying for me were like ushering over these other adults saying come on we need more spiritual resources so i had about eight people standing around me and they started shouting you know demons of homosexuality get out of her i'm obviously just so embarrassed because and it's that age when everything's embarrassing watching and um yeah and they just prayed and prayed for ages and ages how long and, must have been at least 25 minutes. This is, uh, this is mm-hmm. ch- child abuse. This and is it an felt so hard. I couldn't really stop it. And I was crying. And I think they thought I was crying because I was maybe being delivered. <laughs> I don't know. But it was, it was crying really hard. Out the, crying it, out the demons. Right. And at the end of it all, they just said, you know, this is a, such a big day for you. You know, God set you free. You can go, go out and sin no more. And then they told me, and I say this in the book, mm. that if it ever came back, those feelings ever came back, if I tried fasting... So prayer and fasting from food, that that was kind of a biblical way to also be set free from difficult things. And I thought, great, maybe there, you know, maybe God set me free. If he hasn't, I can keep praying and fasting. Obviously, it didn't work because right. I'm still here and I'm still... How, how quickly did you realise that it hadn't worked? Um, probably took me about 24 hours. <laughs> but um, at the time, obviously, I was devastated because it, it raised all these questions for me about this must be my fault. Yes, you of know. course. I'm not, I don't have enough faith. You know, it's quite a classic thing that Christians are often told. You know, if things don't happen, you just believe more. more. Or maybe if you were a better person or you had prayed more earnestly. It's, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's almost the currency of guilt and shame, isn't it? It's, mm. it's, what, what do the rest of them feel guilty and shameful about? What, what do the straight members of the congregate? Because it seems to be the, the fuel in the engine of the... Of, of, I mean, I know there's a lot of positivity to it and a lot of love and mm. a lot of uh, encouragement to be excellent to each other and to love thy neighbour and to do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. That's a good summary. Which is why I'm moulding... <laughs> good summary of the whole religion. Bill, Bill and Ted's excellent <laughs> yes. adventure viewed through the lens of Christianity <laughs> or, vice, or vice versa. But the, but the guilt and the shame is omnipresent. It just... If it's not directed at mm. you, it's a very different experience to be in that church than it is if you are feeling... Right. The well, I, think, I think the original message yes. of guilt and shame was actually supposed to be a really positive part of the Christian faith. So the original message was, you know, we're all shameful in our own ways, but God loves us and Jesus came to earth and to die rich, for that. original and sin as well. Yeah, there's, I think that, and that, so the, the, the place of shame in Christianity is only really supposed to be the bad news before the good news, right. you know. But then for someone like me, there wasn't really any good news because it was your sinful and shameful as a homosexual person therefore you need to never be in a relationship never express that and be alone for the rest of your life and to me that's just not good news would i recognize this the 16 year old you yeah haven't changed much <laughs> no i mean i mean in turn because you're happy and giggly and well i was i was a fairly happy go that's, that's why i'm asking i presume yeah, you I think... were because you can you can park this in yeah. a turmoil can't you and, and the music is the most obvious way to do to it to some but. degree my my classmates did say that they saw a personality change so i, I was puberty. happier well i think sort of yeah 13 14 yeah. but then a lot of teenagers do change anyway don't Very they true, yes. um, but for me it was a sort of sense of withdrawing from things so my friends noticed that i just didn't really join in i mean a lot of the conversations at that time were about which boys they fancied yes, who they were course. dating did you pretend i had well, i did a little bit but i had no idea what to say and it was all such a shock to me to be having these feelings and 
suddenly feeling so different from my classmates who were all girls because mm. it was girls' school. Mm. And so, yeah, they just noticed me pulling away, becoming more isolated. My parents noticed I spent a lot more time in my room. But then, obviously, I was playing my guitar the whole time. I was a, probably a bit of a grumpy teenager. Sure. It, I don't think anybody really noticed why you know there wasn't any particular reason why i was just more withdrawn was there a moment when you thought i'm going to reject the christianity side of me rather than the sexuality side of me because it is odd that you didn't at least mm. or maybe you did flirt with that a bit because it, it would the problem is perhaps it involves rejecting pretty much everything yeah i think my life had become so so massively tied up with that you know yes. going to church multiple times a week having most of my school friends be christian obviously my family and then seeing myself going down this career path into religious music. Mm. So much, you know, if you put the two on the scales, there was just no comparison. You really? So you didn't, no. it wasn't, there was no Robert Frost moment where you took I, the I mean, path I, less trouble? I guess but. it must have just crossed my mind, but I was so convinced as a young person that, it, that same-sex feelings were so wrong. That's the victory, isn't it? The, the victory of the rhetoric, the victory mm, of it, the I mean, it totally, indoctrination. It totally, utterly set my mind to think a very specific way. How many people mm. do you think are still labouring under the tragic illusion that there's something fundamentally wrong with them? Is it? Do you think it, it must be statistically quite commonplace? I do in think these it's still quite high because I hear. Well, I tend to hear from people when they're they must, making that leap to or, kind of come away from. Or that they're teacher. preparing to make. That yeah. Leap. So I hear from a lot of well, people of all ages, but especially what bothers me are young people. Yes. Because I think we're a lot more impressionable, aren't we? When we're kind of young, oh, lots right. of young people saying, you know, I've been taught this all my life. I'm seventeen, eighteen. I'm. You know, people often say things like, oh, I'm off to university, I'm finally going to get to right. explore a more diverse world, to move away from my family and my church. Um, I'm beginning to think maybe what I've been told is is not true, you know. And they're exactly the kind of people that I wrote my book for. I wanted yes. them to be able to have a book that told them, you yes, are fine just clear. the way you are. It's not, you resist the urge. I know that you have a real crack at the scriptures, but it's it, it, it's not a book for the bigots. No, I think if anybody's coming to it with a very closed mind, it's they're still not. going to walk away with a closed mind. I mean, I think it would take a lot to read my story and not have somewhat of their heartstrings pulled out because it's just been a really difficult, painful it's journey. It's visceral. With, yeah, I think anybody with any compassion in their heart would have to say that they are sorry that I went through what I went through. But, but at not, the same time, not then, sorry enough to. No, to I don't think them. anybody who's totally fixated on one view would change their mind. So, 2002, Nashville, Tennessee, mm -hmm. you, you're, you're a star in this world you become a, a big name in the world of evangelical music were, were you and, and you were enjoying it this is important to mm, stress isn't it because yeah. we're going to hit the, the, you got poorly yeah. not long after but i do want people to understand that you it, it's a world that you like yeah no it is it's, it's still, just this it's one vein of it exactly. this one fat exactly sort of yeah. thread of it that's so yeah so hurtful so what's it like because nashville we think of country music and it mm -hmm. has quite a country mm -hmm. twang to it a lot of the it christian does, stuff yeah. that must have been actually just great fun it was really fun it was fun to kind of have my music just suddenly take off and have people around the world singing it in their services and um, we, and, and you'd go and, and visit and be yeah, treated well, like the, a superstar the mega churches in america are fascinating so i went to my first mega church when i was i think i was 19 um, and i write about this as well yes. that i was in the middle of uni studying theology and got this call from la saying can you take a break from uni for a week and come over to los angeles and visit this mega church and talk to a big record label about christian music and i walked into this mega church in america and i was just like a tourist my eyes were on stalks it's this huge purpose-built auditorium i think it seated about five six thousand people it had cinema style seats that flipped up and down massive screen i mean the the, the sound we don't and lighting, know do we in this no, country we've got no idea would rival any normal auditorium for pop and rock tours yeah. and i was just like this is another world 
totally another world. And they said, oh, yeah, we have people coming in every Sunday. Like, we'll pay people to come in and their band and they can sing their music, their religious music. And I think at that point I realised that people actually did it as a job because yes. there were so many of those big churches across America that you could actually do do that every Sunday and some in the week. And it was actually a viable living. And, and just in terms of the touring, it really is on a par with any other music. So big, you know, tour buses, black tour buses with leather seats and... You can't really tell the difference in Nashville between the country artists and the Christian artists. So that's a, a completely alien world, isn't it? To, it is to, to, alien. You're either in it yeah. or you know nothing about yeah, it. Yeah, it's quite alien. There's no middle ground no. Because in the UK, obviously, a lot of the churches are just small stone Anglican churches, you yes. know, Church of England parish churches, whereas in the US, you're just looking at these huge auditoriums. And part of that doesn't sit well with me, to be honest. Part of me does wonder... Is that the best use of people's money? Mm, Um, And there is a sort of celebrity showbiz element to it, which I was never comfortable with and I still don't really like. No, Um, and there is a constant opportunity to raise money, isn't there? Yeah, and I I don't think the word celebrity or rock star should ever be synonymous with Christian faith. Although you were... You became the, the, in your own words, the poster child for well, evangelical. I've Christians. never said that myself. No, no but I know, but the words that you. <laughs> other people have said about it. Yes. Um, but I mean, I think for me, it was one step at a time. You know, growing up in a village in Kent, writing songs for a church down the road, just following step by step, and then weirdly finding myself in these five thousand seater churches in California. It wasn't like I ever kind of aspired for that. You know, one opportunity led to another, and before I knew it, I was there, blinking in the lights, going. How on earth did I get here, and what what, did, what is this? You know. Forgive me if this is an inappropriate question, but did the, did the fact that you're very beautiful play a part in it? Oh, you don't have to say that. <laughs> That's very cool. Well, I mean, I don't know. Did, I mean, because presumably when there's something in the the physical presence as well, it's not just the music. You look fantastic up on oh. the stage, and you sort of. It's nice of you to say so. Well, it's it's kind of obvious. Well, there was a lot of pressure actually when I arrived in Nashville. Right. Funnily enough, the first thing that happened was one of the record label people looked me up and down, yes. decided that I needed to lose weight, Ooh. and so gave me the number of a personal trainer. Yeah. So, um, so that's a big yes, the way you look was. <laughs> it, yeah, and then I heard other conversations saying, oh, we're interested in signing this other British worship leader guy because he's really handsome. Okay. And yeah. so I would hear conversations like that, and I think in the words of those sort of people, they were looking for the whole package. And yeah. I was always very insecure, I think probably because of all my own... Shame-based issues. Well, you know, exactly. That's I'd, why I'd never asked. felt. I'd never felt attractive. I'd never felt good enough. I would always be looking in the mirror, thinking I need to be skinnier. I need to look different. I'd always actually really wanted to cut my hair short, and it actually took me until my thirties yeah. to cut it off because everyone over there just kept saying, "Oh, we really like the fact that you could have long blonde hair. Like that really helps us." Yes. And inside, I was thinking, "I'm such a tomboy. You know, I just want a buzz cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, yeah. and to show up in my Converse high tops and." It, but it's, it's it, yeah. almost like you've doubled down on the contradiction in, in this because you've mm. become the the kind of virginal, beautiful <laughs> poster child for evangelical Christianity, and inside you still know that you're a mm. frightened gay woman who yeah. is worried yeah. that you may never kiss yeah. anyone. I mean, mm. had you had any experiences at all at this point in your life? So I didn't really feel confident enough to live any kind of double life. No. I think a lot of people with my story would have had this kind of behind closed doors there was a different story but um i was always <laughs> i was always so earnest and yes. my conscience was incredibly sensitive um i'm the oldest child in our family and i know often oldest children can have that sort of sense of responsibility uh, of course, yeah, of course. and i've just always been like that i was such a perfectionist throughout all of my childhood and teenage years and so, that, but you're, you know, you're tamping down so much as each year passes, aren't mm, you? You're holding, mm-hmm. you're, you're t- tightening and tightening, and this yeah, yep. begins to manifest itself physically. But before that, you you kind of go searching for a happier place to be. You move from Nashville to San Diego. 
They greet you by banning same-sex marriage <laughs> shortly <laughs> after you got there. Just to coincide in with Cal- my arrival. Yeah, in ca- yeah. in California. Um, that gave a big boost to the, to the Christian. I, I hate using the word Christian in this context mm. because what you're describing to me is nothing to do with Jesus, but <laughs> we'll have that conversation privately. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it, it was... It was quite ugly, this atmosphere mm. that you found yourself in. And even before you came out, you, you, you started being targeted. Yeah. So Why was that? When it got to that point politically, so at this point I was in my late 20s, yes. I'd managed to kind of outrun the topic of same-sex relationships most of the time. You know, it wasn't kind of on people's agenda every Sunday. Occasionally it would be in the places I played and sang, but very rarely. But then in California, Proposition 8 yes. was a law that was coming in to, you know, it was about same-sex marriage. And... The churches were um, becoming very political. We know that with Donald Trump. You know, oh, yeah. I think eighty-one percent of white evangelicals voted Trump in. So the church in America is. So you very... would have been one of the least surprised people in the country. Oh by, yeah, by totally unsurprised because they else. they were my audience. Got you. So around the time same-sex marriage was going to be introduced to, to California, that was the church was becoming more political. So suddenly, everywhere I played in these mega churches the sermons would be about this political topic. Ah, so it would be, I mean, as as dramatic as, you know, preaching about gay people bringing the end of the world, yeah. that they belong to the devil, and then suddenly they'd say, and now the lovely Vicky Beeching is going to come up and play some more of her songs. You know, and I'd been sitting on the front row close enough to even feel the preacher's spit, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had to sit there through those horrendously homophobic sermons and then get up after they'd said what they said almost as if I was providing some kind of soundtrack, you know, to their rhetoric. This must have been tearing you to pieces. It it did become harder and harder. It just felt like everything in me wanted to grab that microphone and just scream, like, you're talking about me. You know, I am one of these people. You know, it's not these gay people out there. It's gay people in here, inside the church. But I never was able to do that. I knew I would lose everything. At that point, actually, not only my livelihood, but my my US work visa, my oh, permit to gosh. even live and reside there. And I, I lived there for 10 years yes. throughout all of my 20s. I would have lost that, my record deal, um, all of my income, all of my friends. I, I don't know what I would have done, you know. So at that point, I just I just had to go along with it. But it was taking a greater and greater toll on my mind and body. Uh, culminating in you getting really quite poorly. But this mm. was after you came back to England in, in 2012. Well, it was, it was in the US that I began to develop extreme amounts of fatigue and in the end, I was looking in the mirror one day and I noticed that I was getting all these white patches on my skin. And I didn't really think much of it, but they didn't go away. And um, I was more and more concerned. So I went to a doctor actually in California first and I said, what, what's going on? You know, exhausted all the time, hmm. strange white patches appearing on my skin. And he said, <laughs> I, I was terrified. I was really terrified. Um, and he said, um, actually, I'm afraid it's really bad news because I thought maybe it was... I don't know, eczema sure, or of course. something that you could just grab a lotion and go, yes. you know. And he said, actually, this is an autoimmune disease called scleroderma. And he said, what happens in scleroderma is that your skin cells begin to turn into scar tissue. And in his exact words, he said, your body is literally fighting against itself. And do you know for sure that this was a kind of physical reaction to your mental trauma well as you can imagine i've done a lot of research (laughs) so both that doctor and then the the senior guy in london for scleroderma who i now see probably every three or four months along with two other specialists Mm. all of whom have said autoimmune diseases happen for a whole variety of reasons but you can have them indormantly in your body and never ever have them manifest but um in their opinion stress and trauma 
have a huge factor you know they play a huge role in triggering these illnesses and they just said especially you know in people like me you know younger women that have had lots of stuff going on there's just an odd number of people that come come to them with autoimmune illnesses really and they really believe there's a, a kind of psychosomatic role that if you are under a huge amount of stress and trauma your body sort of signals that there's something wrong it's right? utterly plausible isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, it's, yeah it's, it's, and for me it was just you know the constant shame anxiety i mean they would link it to physiological things so yes. i had been stuck in fight or flight mode adrenaline. for my whole life yes. you know my adrenals were just messed up you know so much adrenaline in my body all this fear all this shame constantly on edge it takes a toll on your physiology culminating in chemotherapy yeah well they said that to me in that day in california you, you'll need a form of chemotherapy this is not going to be life as usual and so i decided then and there you know i'm obviously going to need to go home be around people i know be with the nhs yes. <laughs> um, private health care in the u.s is frightening yeah. so yeah that, that diagnosis led to just everything coming to a great halt you know i went from this crazy busy life of touring and singing and traveling to just ending up in a hospital room back in the uk with an iv stuck in my arm and it was actually there in that hospital bed where I decided I have to accept that I'm gay and I have to come out. Who did you tell first? So one of the first people I told was a therapist. I felt like that was essential. And I always recommend that to anybody. And the therapy was linked to the illness rather than um, No, it was, was a, like therapy. psychological yeah. kind of okay. counselling. Yes. Um, the doctors did did press me on it they did say you know whatever it is you don't have to tell us but just sort it out right yeah and, and then you I, knew they knew i well i think they i knew that they knew there was something going on but they were very british once <laughs> I, I told I see, you, yeah. so it was like you know no one need to tell us <laughs> stiff up a lip go away sort it out tell someone else Gosh. you know um so yeah i think i've probably worked with about five or six different therapists since you know since that health diagnosis yes. and i still have people that i work with today so it, it meant to help you come to terms with a lifetime of, yeah, of denial it, and shame. It does feel like that. It does feel like that. And of some course. of them have even said that they feel like I was brainwashed. Yes. And that's quite a lot to come to terms with. I would never use those words about myself. Because you word, still, but, I mean, did it shake your faith when you got ill? Um, I think I felt devastated that living by the teachings of the church had wound me up in such a broken, damaged state. But you still loved the church. I think that. The thing for me was I was somehow able to separate God from the church. Yes. And so, weirdly, God was still my place to run to for yes. help. So I would still be praying about these things and asking God to heal me and keep me safe. And, and I was able to see the church as actually a group of people that even God was quite disappointed with. So I remember sitting on the hospital bed just crying, and I, I kind of felt like God was there with me crying as well. Gosh, yes. Just that God was heartbroken about the way the church was behaving. This is, I think, obviously it's very fashionable to be dismissive of religion, but the two Mm. words that possibly people would do well to focus on, for me, have always been comfort and company. Yeah, 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 I think faith And you had very little comfort or company elsewhere in your life, so to give up Mm -hmm. God would have been almost too much to bear. It would have, absolutely, yeah. Who was the first person you told outside of therapy? Um, Outside of therapy was my best friend, and she was great. Actually, everybody was a bit surprised. Really? Nobody had seen it coming. So did um, they think you were celibate? Did they think you were just asexual? Well, the interesting thing was that because I was touring, 
everybody just assumed that I was very busy, that I was never in one place for long. And then there's this, um, I also talk about in the book, this really important teaching in evangelicalism that you don't have sex before marriage. Mm, so and that, that helps, you know, dating course. is kind of, um, yes, you only really date if you're quite serious. So yeah. you'd probably hang out with someone as a friend of the opposite sex, of course, you know, yes. hang out as friends in groups. That's really encouraged, like church groups, you know, with other people there. So it doesn't get too intense. And then if you actually think there might be a, a possibility for you to get married, then you start dating right. kind of with that quite a serious air to it. So, so casual so in a way, dating it, is not it, really smiled upon. It lends itself to denial. Yeah, it does. So I actually ended up speaking about kind of the abstinence movement and all the kind of teachings of evangelicalism because, I mean, people just expected that of me because I appeared to be opposed to child for that, I suppose. But little did they know I was just, you know, in pieces, kind of crying and living a closeted life. Did you fancy people close to you? Did you did you ever get did you just really fancy someone who you were? I totally every... had heartbreak over yeah. multiple women, yes. um, and it was always so difficult because because nobody knew. I couldn't tell anyone. I mean, all of them were straight, so I yeah. doubt whether it would have worked out anyway. But the most heartbreaking aspect was that if I had you know someone in my close friendship circle who I developed feelings for. And I would say a couple of them I even fell in love with over the years. Mm. I would always be the one that they came to saying, I've met this amazing guy. You need to meet him. We had our first kiss or we're engaged. Will you be my bridesmaid? And I mean, that is just heartbreaking, you know, and I know loads of closeted gay people have have experienced exactly the same thing. Male and female. Exactly. And it's just devastating. You feel like you're invisible, like you can't talk about how you're feeling, that you're never going to have a chance with anyone so you eased yourself out of the closet, and then in 2014 you announced it. Yeah, well, I told you'd already. Just to be clear, you'd already mm-hmm. spoken up in favour of same-sex mm-hmm. marriage. So you'd already yeah. alienated. I'm going to use the word market because I'm more right. comfortable with it than congregation. Yeah. You'd already alienated much of the old market. Well, it was sort of a step in the water. I was kind of dabbling yes. my feet. So um, it was only a few months before I came out, and right. I thought. I wonder if this will be a good kind of, I don't know, almost just a litmus test to see what happens. Because I had so much love and affirmation from that whole world in the US and the UK with an evangelicalism. I thought, I wonder what would happen if I said that I think same-sex marriage could be okay. And for me, that was a lot easier than saying it's about me. Yes, of course. So I went out on a limb first and said, actually, I think think same-sex marriage is acceptable. You know, we've misunderstood the Bible. And the backlash was just unbelievable. I mean, my... A lot of my stuff is done online, so mm. I've always been a big blogger and lots of stuff on Twitter and Facebook and just the wave of stuff that came at me about how appalled and shocked people were that I'd even encounter sort of any theology and give it any credence, you know, that same-sex marriage could be okay. I mean, I was just overwhelmed by that and I thought, that is not a good sign. <laughs> Why didn't it push you back? Why did it then, because months later then you went the whole hole? Yeah, I mean, it did make me reconsider. Honestly, sure it, did. it did. I thought, actually, if that is the kind of vitriol that I'm going to get... I'm talking about other people. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about other people and just the theology being okay. Uh, but but it was just too much. I couldn't... I think once I'd stepped out that far, it was just too hard to not say, actually, the people you're saying these vicious things about, it's actually me. But though it was frightening. I just felt like I had to go all the way and a few months later say, this is my story. And um, I got to tell it to an, a journalist from the Independent newspaper yes. and uh, made sure that we really told a detailed, long piece that kind of it just got everything out there once once and for all. <laughs> and and Vicky Beeching, in, in one sense both ceased to be and began that day. Mm. You, you, I mean, because the, the life that you lived before was utterly unvisitable. That mm. was it. It wasn't just, you weren't just closing the door, you were erasing a lot of it. 
Yeah. It was so, I mean, that explains partly why therapy would be so important to you moving forward, but but also mm. also why you are so keen to get this story out there so that other people perhaps don't have to wait until they're 35. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking to me to think that half a life went by. I mean, it's just a long, long time to not really be able to be honest. And doing that interview was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. I just... Scarier than 20,000 people in a megachurch. Oh, that was nothing compared to that. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I mean, I, I just remember looking at the journalist, Patrick, while he was doing the interview, and I was thinking, I have no idea what life looks like after this. I couldn't imagine it because it was so far off the map of anybody. I mean, there were no openly gay evangelical leaders when I came out. There was no Gosh. one. People have come out afterwards, but before I said what I said, there was no one to follow. There was no role model. There was no, you know this is how it happens, this is what will go next. Even badly, like, would have been helpful, but just there was no mm. one. So it was terrifying. And the floodgates of abuse opened almost immediately. Mm. I mean, death threats, seven-page yeah. seven letters urging you to repent your yeah. your lesbianism, hatred, vitriol. Do you, do you understand that, Vicky? Because it's so odd to think of two people who fall in love or two people who fancy each other uh, inspiring and inciting such viciousness and mm -hmm. such fury in in people who were otherwise you would believe possibly more than i would who were otherwise nice and decent yeah. it yeah. just flicks a switch that it is does seem to flick a switch. utterly bizarre it really does. i mean people that i had known eaten dinner with yes. and sung at their churches and all of that good stuff you know it just it just felt like suddenly nothing else about me counted none of my music none of my years of service to the church Nothing counted. It was just now I had one label, and that label was gay. And suddenly I was seen as a danger and a threat, I think, because it, especially in America, the church knew that so many young people listened to my music mm. that suddenly the evangelicals were terrified. They were thinking, well, now all those young people, you know, they're going to be led astray, as well, they call it. Back to Section 28 and the fear that <clears throat> it might be contagious. Yeah, exactly. But just that people would be permissioned to live this life of sin and... Actually, all that hate mail still comes in now. And unfortunately, with the coming out of the book yes. this month, that's just kind of poked the hornet nest even more. And I've had even more vitriol and trolling and threats. And but you also get a lot of positive responses. Yeah. I mean, that is, uh, people are yeah. a lot more emboldened to be vile. But, yeah. but, but, but <laughs> Social but, media does not help, does it? Anonymity is not, no, it doesn't lend is not our friend. It's a polite discourse. No, but I mean, the, the wonderful positivities yes. for me are what I focus on. You must have changed young people's lives in a way that if only someone could have done for you. Mm. That that has become my gold, goal, really, just to, to, to be what I needed when I was 13. And I've just heard so many stories, I mean, just beautiful stories of people coming out, finding the courage, people of all ages. Do you know, it's quite bizarre because this... I'm not quite sure what the schedule is for these podcasts being published, but but I've, I've been talking to Catelyn Moran today. Um, mm. who's oh, she's fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, you have a very similar story in in the sense of you want to tell young girls the things that you wish someone had told you. Yeah. But, 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 I mean, Catelyn won't mind me saying her, her story is one of a, a degree of, um, I'd probably say promiscuity, or, or, or but, but she talks a lot about sex and a lot about giving advice about sex. But right. it, it, oddly, because if, if, <laughs> if you saw the two of you yeah. in isolation, the idea that you were both on a mission to help young mm -hmm. girls cope with the world they were living in in a way that no one could help you. Mm -hmm. You're actually two sides of the same. Yeah, no, I, I have huge respect for her work. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I love it, what she does. I've read, read her books. I think they're fantastic. Knowing that I was doing mm. 
interviews with both of you today, I, I, I didn't think there would be any common ground. But <laughs> it turns out that the common ground is huge. Yeah, I think... You I have think, a mission. Yeah. You almost yeah. are, and, and that would be like for a you a Christian duty, perhaps, to help Not others. really, no. I think it's just a, just a human duty yes. to enable people to be who they are. And the book is not just for christians and my audience Far from you know now, no, no, nowadays no. my audience is very broad like i do stuff on lbc and the yes. bbc and sky news and and my my passion really is current affairs and equality so equality campaign and you're strong on cyber bullying you're, you're interested yeah. in technology you just want people yeah. to be a bit nicer to each other for me it's all about authenticity and freedom so people being freed to be themselves and the book really is a you know kind of a call to action whatever your fear is yes. whether you're gay or straight religious or not the courage to be your true self, it can take a lot, can't it? Take guts to mm. kind of be especially if you're different in some ways, if you're part of a minority. But my yeah, my mission now is just to kind of set people free to be themselves and tell them not to leave it until it's too late, you know? Because for me, I have a huge it's amount of regrets. Too, yeah, but it's not too late. It's never too late, but I wish I could get my my thirty five years back. <laughs> I wish I could do it over. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be twenty years, wouldn't it? Twenty two. Well, yeah. Kind of, I guess so. Yeah. I just wish um I wish I could do it all over again. But I, I think it, rather than focus on those regrets, I try and channel that into helping other people not have to go through the same thing. Are, are you in a relationship now? Um, I'm not, no. Life has been so busy writing the book about all of this um, <laughs> that I just decided it was too much to date and write the book. <laughs> so sure. It's quite ironic, really. Have you got the tools? To, I mean, because you're starting at 35 doing what the rest of us did at 13 or 14 with, in my case, quite spectacular clumsiness. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is another slightly awkward part of the whole thing yes. that I feel mildly awkward talking about because it's just embarrassing to start dating when you're in your mid-20s. I mean, your mid-30s. It's mm. um, you know, Everybody else talked about all of this in the classroom when they were 13. I was not able to take part in those conversations. So, But you're an incredibly gifted communicator. So it, oh, it, thank it, you. It, 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 <laughs> one imagines that, that it will be like sort of something you could slip into very easily. <laughs> well, I had my first um, relationship after I came out, and uh, there's a couple of lines in the book about how I just didn't really know how to do dating, um, especially like lesbian dating. And uh, I say in the book that I'm really confused because I've been raised with these really traditional Christian views, you know, that male headship, basically mm, men of sort of lead the relationship. Yes. So the man would always pay and <laughs> open the doors. And <laughs> well, I was what, like, what? Going, why do I open the doors sort of lesbian <laughs> You're never going to get out of this room. He <laughs> <laughs> pays the bill when it's two gay women. I was so confused. And um, it was just kind of lucky that the, that woman that I um, ended up being quite a serious relationship with for a year after I came out, she had always been openly gay and was obviously good at all the protocols yeah. <laughs> she knew that both people can open the door Thought and both people can pay and it sounds kind of silly but it i think it's just it's just learning all. social of course, etiquette of course I think. it is of course it is it's, it's not unlike coming out of holy orders actually right perhaps, that's how i felt honestly i'm that sure is how it I is how you felt yeah um and much of the old church is alienated your, your, your mum and dad came through for you with with this curious if you'll allow me kind of fudge where we'll disagree about the theology but we'll still be loving and close i think all of my family are on a journey and i think that's all that matters to me oh they are, they are trying to understand yeah i mean my the way my family has treated me has not changed so me coming out has not in any way changed their love for me or my welcome at home when i was in that relationship with that girl for a year they were very happy to meet her we went out on a day trip together in battersea park and it was it was wonderful you know so i haven't felt any judgment or negativity um, and we're on a journey you know some of my relatives are slightly more on the same page as me right. about what I think the Bible says. Other yes. relatives are still not sure. But it's I, I feel for them because it's hard to undo 
for them, you know, 65 years of, course it is. of being told something. This, you know? is, this is a point a lot of the activists miss, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is that it's, yeah. not, it's not a bigotry in, 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 no, in the sense. It's, an, no, it's just no. you're asking, particularly with same-sex marriage, because even as a sort of fully paid-up member of the liberal metropolitan elite, I, I did realise, as a churchgoer, that, that people aren't homophobic. They just have spent their entire lives thinking that only a man and a woman can get married. It's all they've ever known and all they've ever experienced. So simply to be told overnight that you have mm. to rip up that rule book and, and if you don't, there's something really nasty right. about it. That's actually right. unhelpful. It's a lot to expect. It is it's a, a lot, lot to, to expect. expect. And my grandfather is 94. Yes, yes. And has been a missionary and a preacher his whole life and... It's a lot to expect someone at that age, you know. To um, just go yeah. 180 and then, like, degrees. Even some of them, some people I've spoken to kind of in my in my family said it's very difficult because they mm. were told by the government that it was illegal. Yes, of course they so were. So if you're yeah. brought up in a system politically that tells you that an act is actually illegal, I mean, that's like, it's quite a lot to get your head around, isn't it? That not only is it now <laughs> legal, but it's also something that Christians can yeah. affirm and support um, and, and they can do it in your church exactly can, but I, yeah this is this, this is why you decided not to become a, a, a cleric to become a vicar yourself yeah so because the church yeah, isn't there yet right and i did an interview with the sunday times recently about mm. that just saying i'd finally let go of my kind of plan i suppose to to go forward for the priesthood i'd been encouraged by many people to do so i've got almost all of the training already because of my theology degree and I've just been encouraged over and over by senior people in the church to go forward for training. But the, the tricky thing is, in order to take that step, you have to go for a panel. Mm. It's called a bishop's advisory panel, ironically shortened to BAP, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, to go forward for one of these panels, you basically have to submit yourself to four or five people that are going to sit across from you and interview you. Mm. And some of the reports about what happens in those... Um, are just a bit distressing. You know, they can be quite invasive. Lots of questioning about, you know, if you are... I mean, if you're someone like me and you're known to be openly gay and a bit of a troublemaker, (laughs) you know, for my own mental health, I don't think I could walk into that room and submit myself to intense, invasive questioning about my own sexuality, my own sexual practices, what I would do in the future. So for lots of people like me who are gay, we don't feel able to go to those panels, so we can't actually go forward... For priesthood, even if everybody says would be great, it just feels like, I don't know, not only the panel, but also just the state of the church at the moment. There's so much infighting, as you know. Yeah, of course. Um, and if you are a priest and you step outside the lines, there's various forms of clergy discipline. Yes. And some of my friends have been through that. So for all of those reasons, I think until the church really changes, it's not a safe place for me to work. And and, and you found a, a, I mean, this worship leader is the phrase they use in the church, but you found or you're finding a leadership role in in the secular world but with a christian mm, basis most, most of my work now is in equality campaigning yes exactly so writing writing the book you know writing a lot of newspaper articles and, and broadcast stuff up on the telly yeah all the time I, I just want to be a visible voice you know for some, somebody just saying actually this oh, happened to me she looks it needs great to there's nothing wrong with me <laughs> that's it though isn't it that's it. Well, I, I do want to give people hope i think yes. if i could come up with one word i just want to give people hope if they're stuck in that place of feeling like they can't be gay and christian um, or whatever it is, bisexual, transgender, you know, whatever whatever it is that the church says is wrong, I just want to tell people, actually, come out of the closet and be you, because uh, God but, loves but, but you. But exactly also, as, you, as you say, it's, 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 it's anyone who's got fear. Mm-hmm. It's not just sexuality. Anyone exactly. who's frightened yeah. or scared, there's a message for them in this book, as you say. Yeah. It's, it's for anyone and everyone. 
because it's about authenticity, being the real you, isn't mm. it? Facing your fears and living the fullest life possible. Yeah. Final question, and this is more out of my personal interest and my own curious relationship with religion. Where do you worship now? Mm-hmm. So my background, obviously, is in the evangelical, yes. happy, clappy churches. I tried going back to them after I came out and actually ended up having to walk out oh, in tears I, several times because yes. I would see people, you know, standing up the front singing and doing the things I used to do mm. and know that I would never be welcome. Um, so actually now I go to cathedrals right? and often right. Evensong, which is a, just a kind of evening sung yeah. service. And I just love the anonymity. I yes, love that I, I don't have to be... I don't know, grilled by anyone. It's a more meditative experience. It, yeah, it feels like I meet God in the silence yes. and even in the architecture because just looking up, you know, those gorgeous ceilings and pillars. Exactly. It just sort of, <laughs> I think it's just meant to lift your eyes up, isn't yeah. it, to remind you that actually when it all feels a bit much and the world's closing in, yes. you can sort of look up and feel that sense of, I don't know, the greatness of who God is. So I often find myself going to cathedrals um, in the middle of the day as well if I just need a bit of peace when all the hate hate mail and the death threats and the social media vitriols coming in, I just sneak into the back of the cathedral and just sit there and have a bit of silence and um, just remind myself, I think, that the church has changed, changed on slavery, changed on women, it's going to change on LGBT equality, and uh, I believe that we're on the right side of history. And I think your work will speed up that process. I really, really hope so. Vicky Beeching, <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks. That was lovely. <laughs> What a remarkable story and, and what a lovely woman. It's it's rare to meet someone who is dedicated to working solely for the benefit of others. But but I guess it kind of describes the proper Christian attitude. I hope you'll have a look at, at Vicky's book. It's called Undivided, Coming Out, Becoming Whole and Living Free from Shame. If you enjoyed that, don't forget to subscribe to Unfiltered. There's plenty more where that came from. Do leave a rating and ideally a review on iTunes, as long as it's positive. Don't leave any shit ones. And if you know someone who would enjoy the show, then do feel free to introduce them to it. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.